Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Anoint our efforts, hallelujah, because I know with him, hallelujah, we can accomplish what we need to. Hallelujah, so let's pray. God, I love you today. We love him. We thank you. Father, we ask you from right now. Father, we tell you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we can't do this alone. But God, I know with your anointing, with your strength, with your guidance, you can touch us, Lord God. Everything we do or say, God, I pray, that, I pray in Jesus' name, God, touch it, strengthen us, Lord God. Ever better ministry, Lord God. Everything, Lord God, I pray, touch us, Lord God. Strengthen us, Lord. Give us the insight and the wisdom and the knowledge that we need. Thank you for what you're going to do, God. We praise you and thank you this day. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Hallelujah. First thing I'd like to say is I appreciate what I heard um, Wednesday night. And it sort of, if you'll just pardon me using this reference, but it sort of reminded me of the times when I was privileged enough of having my grandparents and um my father's mother I never knew, but both of my grandparents, um, of my, my dad's, my mother's dad and my father's dad, um, I remember sitting around and just listening to them tell stories. And I said, today, if you would ask me to repeat the stories, some of them I can, but a lot of them I can't. Um, but I still needed to hear them stories because of what they went through and just the times that they went through. And to me, that's what Wednesday night was like to me. Um, it's not all about me. It's not about all what I go through. A lot of life has went on before I ever stepped on this planet. And so it's good to hear from all the different avenues and we're all different personalities and makes and makeups and likes and dislikes and and to hear it, and, and, you know, one of the sayings I've always said, if you could take the wisdom of the elderly and harness the zeal of the youth and put that together, <laughs> then you can go somewhere. And sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's a little more difficult, but uh, still, still, I really enjoyed it. And one of the closing statements that um, Brother Gibson made um, really struck me um, where he talked about Azuzu Street and there would be a people that would praise him but yet wouldn't pray to him. And one of my likes, and, and I've really tried to harness this to a point, but uh, it's like anything. If you talk to someone long enough, you know what their likes are. And a lot of you probably don't even know what motocross is, but um, it's just one thing. is It's just men and now women that rides dirt bikes and jumps and all kind of crazy things. But um, it is just something that I grew up 
with and loving and liking and and even though I'm older now, I still enjoy it and still love to watch it. And um, But as he spoke, and the next Thursday and Friday, I thought about a young man. I want to take just a moment. Uh, he was from Bristol, Pennsylvania. And this is 1973. At this time, you had to be 18 years old to enter an AMA-sanctioned pro event. The young man was only 15, so what he would do, there was another young man that was 18 that was old enough to race. He would take his certification, and I guess they just didn't check him close enough, and he started racing. And it wasn't long before the factories started noticing this kid is fast. And what they nicknamed him is the pistol from Bristol because he was so fast. And so, of course, naturally, when they checked into him, they realized this kid's not old enough. But they they left him alone, and when he got of age um, to be able old enough to race on his own is when he landed at Suzuki. And he literally dominated, and he won three AMA events, national titles, and what that means in this racing, this is all over the United States, and now you can come from anywhere in the world and race in this event. You cannot just walk up here or to that event and enter. You have to have credentials even to qualify. Then you have to qualify to enter. So it is literally, when you say you've won just one race, you have beat the best of the best. But to win a national you have beat the best of the best 24 times. And he did this three times. So in 1979, he, uh, you know, it's like any other race-oriented vehicle. You know, it's a joke. We've always said you're either racing it or working on it. And literally, it is a truth with dirt bikes. So he was in the workshop. And there was an accident. He was struck in his eye. And uh, they tried after three major operations. um, He wound up losing the sight in one of his eyes. But the man um, was just so determined. He just said, I can't quit racing. So even with one eye, he continued to race. But naturally, with just one eye, he couldn't be as competitive. So he said, you know, I'm not a quitter. I will not quit. So what he established was what he referred to as a motocross school. And he would take, and parents would pay a fee to send their young children to him to gain the knowledge that he had. And he would teach young people, young men and women, the qualities that he possessed. So he was doing, and still is doing, exceptionally well at this. But that was in 79. But in 1988 in New Jersey, he was racing at just a local event. He's retired from racing at this time. And so he's just riding for fun. But he has an accident. And they come to him and he tells them, I don't know, but something is not right with me. And what happens is they, they get him, they put him on the stretcher, they take him to the hospital. And long story short, he is paralyzed from the chest down. So he just says, you know, 
he, he, here he is, he has this established school, and now there's a tremendous amount of schools, but he is like one of the first ones. Suzuki worked with him, helped him establish this. So he just says, you know, they're like, wow, you're paralyzed from the chest down. You know, what are you going to do, get in a chair and stay at home? And he says, that's not me. That's not me. So they said, well, I don't know. You know, we, we don't know what to do. So he says, I do. Get me a harness. Give Suzuki, tell Suzuki to give me a four-wheeler and put me on it. And I will teach my motocross school from the seat of this four-wheeler. And that's exactly what he did. So they went to him, motocross action, which I got in the 70s, which I still get today. They asked him, what about life? And the quote is what I want to start with. They said, what about life now? You knew, you knew the roar of the crowd. You knew the praise of the people. And they said, look at all that you've lost your sight in one eye. You're paralyzed. They said, you will never regain it. What about now? And this is a quote from him, what he said to them. He said, it's not what you do when the crowd is cheering. It is the kind of man you are when they stop. And I thought, that is who I thought about when he said that. And I thought, how many people are going to gather in church today and praise our God, but will never speak to him again till next Sunday? And I said, I don't want that to be me. And what I want to talk about today, I just want to talk to us, is about our pursuit in pursuing our God. And if you don't like stories about life, just pardon my reference to this. But I'm saying here is a man that just said, I will not let life defeat me. And it's just said that others will come, they will sing about a God, but they will not pray to that God. And I don't want that to be me. I want to start in Matthew 5. I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, just read on the screen. This is, I'm going to not speak of very, well, I have a few scriptures, but I have two different points. One is about giving, and then I want to talk about an attitude. Well, really, both of them is about an attitude. But in Matthew this is the, the Sermon on the Mount. I think it, in the Bible it's literally the longest one that the Lord gave. But in Matthew five seventeen, the Lord says it like this. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jolt or one tittle, in no, shall in no wise pass from the law till all the law be fulfilled. Verse 19. Now this is, I want you to pay close attention to 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments, and get this, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now this 20, we quote this all the time. But I, I want you to hear it. This is what Jesus said unto them. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to tell you exactly what I think that that verse means. Now, I just want to hit the portion of 21, or, or we, we'll just read the whole thing. Ye have heard that it, that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever thou shalt kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I, what I want you to pay attention to, and if you want an assignment, I want you to look at this. For ye, ye have heard that it was said. Remember that phrase. Now, turn over just a few pages to Mark. I want to go to Mark 38. Mark chapter 12 and verse 38. This is the Lord when he gets on the scribes and the Pharisees again. 12, Mark 12, 38. I'm going to read 38 through the end of the chapter, which is 44. Now, and he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love long salutations in the marketplace, places, in the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feast, which devour women's houses and for a pretense makes long prayers, these shall receive greater damnation. Verse 41, And Jesus said over against the treasury and beheld the people cast money and beheld, excuse me, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there was a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites which makes a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than all they which hath cast into the treasury. And they all did cast in their abundance, but she cast in of her want. But her of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. Now, if the Lord ever wrote anybody in Scripture, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. He rebuked them to the uttermost. I mean, he, he got on them literally all the time. Now, when he said to them, but I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no, in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Now, in this one I told you to remember, ye have heard that it was said. The reason that the Lord said that to them, I believe it was such a shock when God said that your righteousness had to exceed them. We know the other end of the story now when we read of the scribes and Pharisees and what they was like and God telling us, look, 
these guys, all they're doing it for is a show. But literally, as what I would refer to as the common people, the reason that they would be so shocked is this was their, is what I would call, and hopefully everybody knows what I mean by this, their, these was their benchmark of righteousness. Because, now in the Bible, what I'm saying is where, the, where Jesus told them, ye have heard that it was said. Look sometime in this Sermon on the Mount how many times that quote is said. And the reason that God is saying ye have heard because they could not read Hebrew. Literally, these were slaves. A lot of the Jewish people was held captive and when they come back, they did not even speak the language that the Bible was written in because the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So when they went to the synagogue, the scribes literally read the Bible to them. That we have, we have Bible on that. Because when the uh, Ezra the priest and others would stand and read, the people would stand while it was read to them. So over and over again, Jesus is telling them, ye have heard, ye have heard, because what they have heard is what the scribes have told them. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is telling them, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. So what would it be like? It'd be God telling us, your righteousness has got to seed Brother Boyd. And he would be our pastor. So God is telling them, your righteousness has to exceed them. And I'm sure they're standing there, are we hearing this right? The one that has been what we would consider righteousness, God is telling us that we have to exceed them. They have been the one that has taught us what righteousness is. In other words, they have taught us this word. They could not read it. The scribes could read it. The Pharisees was the interpreters of the law. Scribes recorded it. They was the privileged ones that could write it. But Jesus kept telling them, ye have heard. He goes on and on and on telling them, ye have heard, ye have heard. And he explains this to them. It's not only what you hear, it's what you know. All you know is what you've been told. And Jesus is telling them, your righteousness has to exceed this. And that's why he's telling them, if you break one, you are, the scribes was referring to the law. And he said, if you break one of these and you teach men, you are going to receive the greater damnation. And it was the scribes that was standing out and the Pharisees that were standing out on the sidewalks, look at me, I'm so holy, I teach the common man. And God says, not so. How dare you teach my people that it's something false and you stand out and say you are so holy. That is why God was condemning them. You are the one that's wrong and you dare stand up and say you have the authority to teach somebody also. And God said, what you've got to do, you've got to first do, then teach. You cannot teach and then not do because God said you are going to receive the greater damnation if you do. So he says your righteousness to the common people, this is where God said he's on the side of the mountain and he's telling them, your righteousness has got to exceed them. So then he goes to the treasure 
and God is sitting by the treasurer and he's telling the, 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 the scribes and he says, you go in, you devour widows' houses. Other words, you take money from a widow that you do not deserve. You devour the widows' houses. And then what I find unique is God goes in and then he looks and then most people, because God looked at an amount they write off. I mean, we're just, we're just Americans. We think because God chose an amount, we think it was about the uh, amount. But it wasn't. It was not. Jesus said over against the treasury in 41, and beheld how the people, how the people. We got this term. I mean, Brother Boyd even talks about people watching. God was not people watching. He was heart watching. When he went in, he beheld how the people cast, cast. Anytime you see cast, it is not a choice. This lady had what we would call two coins just for reference sake. She could have withheld one for her sake and gave one. But the Bible says she gave two. And where it says in the Bible that the God loves a cheerful giver, the only, Lord, I've wondered about that, a cheerful giver. The only thing I know it's just like I've said about motocross. Find somebody that you know and it doesn't take long what their passion is. They like to talk about it or they enjoy it. And God said, whatever your sacrifice you're given, just give it with that kind of excitement. Other words, give it to me like you would want to give it or like you are talking about your passion. Have the same passion that you give your gift to me. And so when she did this, she threw it in. She cast it in, the Bible says. And she did this. And he says to the people that he beheld the people. So he took, he watched, and then the Lord tells them, and it says it is not about people being rich. It's not about people being poor. It is the motive in which we give our gift. It's what it's about. God doesn't care how much money you have or how poor you are. That is not the issue. It is the motive in which we give our gift unto the Lord. God does not care the moment you think if you are wealthy or if you have $5. If you think you've earned it on your own, that is when you have crossed the line. If you are multiple, multiple billionaire and you think and you come to God and you say, thank you for blessing me. I acknowledge you helped me with this. I give this freely and I thank you for it. That is what we should do. If you have $5, you give it to God. Thank you, God. You allowed me to receive this. I give this unto you. That is what we should do. And that is what I believe God was saying in this story about the widow. He just told him, he said, you devour widow houses. You do the scribes. That's why he said, you break one and then you have the nerves to teach my people that cannot even read the scripture in their own language. God said, you are going to receive the greater damnation for this. And he says, you have first you must do then you teach, but they was not doing it. That is why God said your righteousness has got to exceed them. It was all about outward appearances. We know it was all about show. I want to go to the market. I want to stand out. I want to be greeted. You ask me to prayer, it's going to be a long one. Just get ready. And God said, that is not what it is about. We have said it's about being on the inside. It truly is. You cannot have just holiness on the outside. You must have this buried within you. God said, I put my law in you. You have my law, but I'm going to write it on your heart. Put my spirit in you. That is what it's going to be about. Now, in the book of John, 
Turn with me to John 2, if you would. In the second chapter of John, this is where John 2, the Bible talks about, we know it is referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Now, most people, and I guess that's too, well, I don't know. If you ask some, they'll think there was one cleansing of the temple. There was not. There was two. In John, John is unique. And the one in John 2 is the first cleansing of the temple. So in John 2, I'll start at uh, 13. This is literally at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The first miracle he did that John records was changing the water into wine. Literally, that's conversion. Now, this is the second thing he does. At, at the Jews' Passover was at hand, that's John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to the temple... And he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge, that's a whip, of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the auction and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and sent unto them that sold doves. Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, this was not just a, just a rage of just emotion. The Bible says he took time, he sat down, he made a scourge, he made a whip. We don't have to ask if he was aggravated. Here he is. The Bible records this was the first Passover at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. Now here he is. He knows he will be literally the Passover lamb. He goes into the temple and what are they doing? Now, I do know there were certain exceptions where they would, if for people that was extremely far away, they could, at certain, at certain authorizations in the scripture, you can read it, that they could literally purchase something. But just like human nature, it had went off the map. And God walks in, and it, it's, just, it's just a marketplace. And God said, look, you had, look what you, and, and the Bible says temple, but it's actually the temple court is where they're doing this at. And God said, look what you're doing. You have come to my house, and your sacrifice literally means nothing to you. This was at the time of Passover. If you read of the Passover lamb that you had to present to the priest, it was a year-long deal that you had to do. And it's just like, what do you do? It's like, we're going to Passover. Well, what about the lamb? That's all right. We'll just pick one up at the temple. This is what you presented to the priest for your family. And God said, your sacrifice means nothing to you. You come into my house and you just stop out there and you purchase something and you dare come into my house. What are you doing, God? I'm making a whip. What's a whip for? You'll find out in just a minute. And he runs them out of the house simply because their sacrifice meant nothing to them. God said, literally, get out of my house. I didn't want you in here. And you thought, that's cruel. No, it is not. It literally meant nothing. They was just coming out of habit. Well, I'm a Jew. Well, I've been told it's Passover. It's time for me to go. This is one of the times it's appointed as a male. I've got to go. And God said, I don't care. Get out of my house. Your motive is wrong. You, well, 
you know, we don't have nothing. We can just pick something at the temple. It's so convenient. God said, no, no. What you give me, it's got to come from here. You can't just pick it up in the temple court and walk in and hand it to the priest and never even look at it to see if it's got any spots or blemishes or you hadn't lived with it. You hadn't. God said, when you give this lamb, it's like giving part of your family to me. It has got to hurt. And you just pick it up and give it to the priest and said, offer this for my family. God said, no, I will not allow this. Get out of my house. And he literally runs them out. So they... I'm sure they didn't know what to do. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. John records the first cleansing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. You can read it. At the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the first Passover that Jesus is in. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the last Passover in Jesus' ministry. So what does that mean to us? Jesus began and ended his ministry with the cleansing of the temple. So it warns me on how I give my sacrifice matters to God because he began and he ended his ministry. So it's not when we take up an offering that it's just, well, he's told me I got to do this. God is saying, no, absolutely not. Just like the widow, I am looking at your motive. In your pursuit of me, this is not about paying me off. This is about the blessings that I have blessed you with, the kindness that I've bestowed upon you, the blessings that I have put upon your family, how thankful you are. And God literally says, I want you to perceive what I have done in your life to the best of your ability and give as unto the Lord because your sacrifice counts when it comes to God we as Americans put a a dollar amount on it when we really should not do it we think literally because all I had was five dollars and the man beside of me gave a thousand and God's going to love him more than me that is so untrue That is so untrue. God is saying this poor widow that you scribes has devoured, she has given more from her heart. God, if anybody has won my heart, she has. Not these rich fat cats. We have that from God's own mouth. It is the motive in which you have given your sacrifice of which God is going to receive it. So it in our pursuit of God. So when we take up this offering, a offering of which we give our sacrifice, give it, as the Bible says, with a cheerful heart, willing. God, I thank you for what you give to me. It is in my pursuit of you that I thank you for what I have. For he literally, literally, He would not begin and end because literally the last week God in his flesh was on this planet was when he cleansed the temple at the last Passover. It's when he run them out. And he told them in scripture, 
you that sell and you that buy, get out of my house. And he made them leave. He looped them together. You that sell and you that buy are just as guilty. Don't, don't say them jokers out there, them greedy, greedy jokers that selling to make a profit and going to change the money into Roman money are the ones. No. You that won't put effort into bringing a sacrifice to my house, you're just as guilty as them. And I'm not out on a limb. I'm in the Bible. God run them out. Get out of my house. I don't even want you in here. Them, that may sound harsh, but I'm telling you, I am in the Bible. God literally started and ended his ministry with this cleansing, and it is important. There was two cleansing. Now, number one, number two, turn with me. In First Samuel, the Bible says, and I read it, that he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. The Bible says that the Old Testament is our schoolmaster. It is what brought us to where we are today. And Jesus says, what I did, what I am doing, I am completing the law in which we have. I am the completion of the law. Now, 1 Samuel 16. This is where in the story where Samuel, at this point, Saul has already crossed the forbidden land. And God has rejected him. And it's over for Saul. And God goes... And tell Samuel, he says, there will be another king in Israel, and this is what I want you to do. And look at verse, 1 Samuel 16, look at 4. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came unto Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, because I'm telling you, if there was ever a man of God in Scripture, Samuel was it. You don't read of no harm to speak of. They blasted his sons, but you don't read of no harm in Scripture about Samuel. So the elders of the town came trembling at his coming, and they said, Comest thou peacefully, because they knew the wrath of God would come with Samuel. And he said peacefully, peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. And listen to this. Sanctify yourselves. In other words, set yourself apart. And come with me to the sacrifice. And the Bible says, And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. So what is happening? God is saying, I'm going to pick me a king. You go to Jesse. You tell him I've come for a king. You take his sons. You, you set them apart. You sanctify them. I take that to mean, I'm not saying I'm 100% correct, but when he said sanctify them, I take that 
Samuel literally laid hands on them, prayed for them, and that's the way I look, that he sanctified them. I'm not saying I'm 100% correct, but the Bible says he sanctified them. He set them apart for this sacrifice they was going to. And the sacrifice meaning he was going to pick a king that God told him to. Now, verse 6, And it came to pass when they were to come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, the Lord got sort of ticked off. And God said, Quit looking at the flesh. I'm telling you, stop it. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh where? On the heart. And Samuel just said, You know, look. And God was saying to, to Samuel, Look, Israel's had their king. I'm not picking Saul number two. So get your eyes off the flesh. This is not him. Quit looking at the flesh. Quit thinking because just he's tall and everything's going right that this is Saul number two. And God said, no. I've looked on the heart. This one is not it. So he takes and jump with me to number 10. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, this is what's amazing to me. As Jesse sees Samuel and he knows the reverence that walks with this man and he tells him right up front, I've come to pick a king and get this, it will be one of your sons. But Jesse has got eight sons and he puts seven of them in front of Samuel. I don't know. And Samuel tells him, he said, look, the Lord hadn't chosen none of these. What are you doing? Don't you have any more sons? And in 11, and Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. And I don't know, that may, be been, that may have been the reason why he didn't even speak of David. You know, he's just a young punk. Just whatever. He's just, he ain't even worth mentioning. And there remaineth the young us, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said, to, and Samuel said to Jesse, send and fetch, for we will not sit down until he cometh. Now, the Bible says, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. He keepeth the sheep. God said, I'm looking on his heart. I'm looking on his heart. I don't know why Jesse didn't include David. He just left him out in the field. Just left him out there. But David was doing the job of a servant. Really, when you read of the heritage and the lifestyle of these men and women. It was not a job of the family to keep the sheep. It was a job of the servant. And he asked, Samuel asked him, said, where's he at? He said, he's keeping the sheep. 
And we, you read in the Psalms so much, and you can tell David had so much time that he just, what was you doing, David? I was keeping the sheep. But during the time I was keeping the sheep, I was not alone. And I wrote it down. And there's so much David gave us at the time that we would think that he was alone. And God had inspired him so much, and he just wrote it down. When Jesse was just saying, oh, I got this young joker. He's out there keeping the sheep, you know. And Samuel t- tells him, said, you know, we're not going to sit down till you go get him. And he goes and gets him. In verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. He was rooting with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly look at. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, the Lord told us, Israel, you have had your king. You've had your king. This time, I want someone. And the Bible told us in 13, chapter 13, verse 14, The Lord sought him a man after his own heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. I will pursue him with everything that's in me. I will pursue him that he was a man after his own heart. God just simply said, Israel, you had yours. But what really, really a phrase that really almost amazed me. I don't know if I give them this scripture, but if you have your Bible, just look at 1 Samuel 16, chapter 1. And I've purposely not read that till now. And the Lord, he's just telling Samuel, basically, get over it, get over it. The Lord said to Samuel, How long without mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? And listen to this. Fill thine horn with oil and go, and send thee, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And this, <laughs> for I have provided me a king. Here is Jehovah of all of the earth. I have provided me a king among his sons. And he said, I want somebody that will love me. Israel had their king, but this time, I want a man that will love me. I have provided me a king, and I have got me someone that will love me. And it is pursuit of David I don't know where he's at. He's out there on the field somewhere watching the sheep. But he was in the pursuit of God. I don't know where you at. I'm just watching the heavens. But I know what I feel. And God said, he has pursued me. And God told Samuel, I have provided me a king, David, whose father was Jesse, whose father was Obed, whose father was Boaz who was married to a young lady named Ruth, whose mother-in-law was Naomi, who was a Moabite, who was a perpetual enemy of Israel, 
that told her mother-in-law, I have been cut off, but I know have what I have felt in this household. And I know, Naomi told her, kiss me and leave like Orpha did. And she said, I will not. Where you go, I'm going. Where they plant you is where they're going to plant me. I know I'm a Moabite, but your God is going to be my God, and I will not leave you. Ophir can go, but I am not leaving. I am perpetually cut off, but I believe that was the deal maker. God said, I know I have cut you off. You are a Moabite, and I have said I will never let you into my bloodline, but this was it. She told her, you going to Bethlehem, I am going to Bethlehem. Boaz, whose mother was Rahab the harlot. And when the men came, why did the men go to there? I can give you two reasons why. God led them to a harlot's house. And God said, you go to them. Why? Because her house was on top of the wall. She had an elevated sight. And God said, you go to her. And then when she made a vow with the spines, it was our life for yours. It's where it started. She told the spies and the spies told her, it is our life for yours. So she told them, this is it. This is it. You go get everybody you know. You get your family, everyone you know. And the spies told her it had to start somewhere and be careful who you put your mouth on because they was in the house of a harlot. And God, and when they let her down, when they let them down, it was by a scarlet cord. Here is where the bloodline started. And when he said, I have provided me a king, my flesh. In other words, it was I, God, Jehovah was saying, I need a bloodline. And this is where my bloodline is going to start with Rahab the harlot. So she took and let the scarlet cord down. And they told her, everybody in this house is safe. But they told her, spies told her, do not go out of this house. For if you do, your blood will be on your head. So literally, God established from the very beginning, if you leave the bloodline, you are on your own. This is the bloodline, the name of Jesus Christ. When you take his name, the blood is applied to you. When you receive the Holy Ghost, you are sealed. You are marked in the Holy Ghost. That's why the enemy will have the mark of the beast. He does everything he can to literally intimidate the Lord. But God said, I will seal you with that mark. So literally, when she let the scarlet cord down, that was the beginning of the bloodline. And you would say, why would God start with this, a harlot? Or why wouldn't he start with her? Literally. So literally the spies could see something in her because God let them. And then the, the harlot could see something in the spies. For just pardon me here. If there's one thing she knew, she knew men. But there's one thing God put in her. These men are different. And the spies could look at the harlot and say, I don't know about her. But in the end they could say, this woman is different. Because God had worked on both ends. God had started it right there. The bloodline had started it. And when God told Samuel, I have provided me a king. I need flesh. And my flesh will start at the bloodline. Do not leave this house. If you do, your blood is on your own head. The spies told him and everyone. And we talking about the walls falling flat. 
guess which part stood? <laughs> Where her house was, I promise you. Joshua 2, read it for yourself. Her house was upon the wall. That's why when she let them down, they was outside the wall of that giant city. That is why God led them to it. It didn't matter it was a harlot's house. That's irrelevant. God can work on anybody. Anybody. Any person that thinks they're gone too far. Read the story of Rahab to them. Literally, I'm telling you, the bloodline, the bloodline started here. So that is why it is for us. Now, I'm telling you, God said, Jehovah said, I've chosen them, I had them. But I'm telling you, I will end with this. This is my point. I've said everything. Just make one statement. We live, there's a lot of religion, Christianity that goes on in this world. If you want to choose me harsh for this statement, I've got over that, I'm telling you. And I'm not, that's not a statement. I mean that. I've done this long enough. I've got over it. But we have read in the Bible. These stories, the Bible says, are. that's why I love them. The Bible says they are our schoolmaster. The Bible says Samuel prayed for them. He sanctified them, which means he set them apart. But I'm telling you, when David come in, the Bible says, set these apart. <laughs> but you anoint, you anoint him. They're going to be those in this day. They're going to say, I'm separated. I have set myself apart. But they are not anointed. They are not in the bloodline. I'm telling you, the bloodline is the name of Jesus Christ. They are set apart, but they are not anointed. The name of Jesus Christ is a separating factor. God said, separate these, but you anoint this one. When he come in, it was, we ain't sitting down. Separate these, but I will anoint him. And I'm telling you, at the name of Jesus Christ, in the full fulfillment of his spirit, we have his anointing. And we are separated and anointed by the Holy Ghost. And I thank you. You may stand. Hallelujah. God bless you. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806. Or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.